0: Welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as we enter a busy late May news fray. Lots to get to in the show today, including a debt deal delay. We could call it Groundhog Day 2, a lost weekend in Washington with debt ceiling negotiators reporting no major progress. High level talks set to get underway again at the White House in just a few hours time. All the details coming up. Plus, Greek investors speak. Greek stocks and bonds soar after a strong showing for the country's market-friendly ruling party, the country's main stock index, in fact, at its highest level in decade, amid hopes Athens can regain its investment-grade status. We've got analysis just ahead. And chips chopped. Shares of Micron Technologies falling more than 4% pre market after China's move to restrict purchases, citing security risks. It's actually China's first big move against US chip makers. Other chip firms with Chinese exposure, think Qualcomm and Intel, are also softer pre market today, too. And the move actually coming just as U.S. President Joe Biden promised that relations between the two nations, the United States and China, will soon improve. And Beijing then blasted what it perceived as an anti-China G7 summit. As an example, U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak saying at the G7 that China, China, quote, poses the biggest challenge of our age to global security and prosperity. We've got a G7 summit wrap just ahead for you too. What's required perhaps to counter that challenge is greater cooperation from other large tech nations. And perhaps we saw some of that overnight. IBM and Google today announcing a combined $150 million investment to develop a quantum-centric supercomputer. Stay with me. Working with universities of Chicago and Tokyo. We speak to the IBM CEO Arvind Krishna later in the show. For now, no quantum leaps on U.S. stock markets. A flat or relatively unchanged U.S. open on tap. Europe, as you can see, a touch softer. I think the debt ceiling uncertainty is not yet really hitting stock investor sentiment in any major way. Wait for it. Facebook parent in the meantime, Meta losing ground after receiving a $1.3 billion fine from the EU tied to data privacy. But fresh gains in Asia with the red hot Nikkei in Japan rising almost 1%. Asian chip makers, perhaps, as you might expect, who could benefit from China's move to ban Micron's technologies, were big winners overnight, too. Now, more on the Micron mess in just a moment. But first, just 10 days to go before Janet Yellen's debt ceiling extate and a deal to raise the US borrowing limit still nowhere in sight. Though there are high level talks, as I've mentioned, in Washington today. Lauren Fox has the latest from Capitol Hill.
1: Julia, this is another high-stakes meeting between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden, and it comes after there was a series of fits and starts in those negotiations over the weekend between White House negotiators and Republican negotiators up here on Capitol Hill. There were several moments over the weekend where it seemed like these talks were starting to break down. I am told that they are still tens of billions of dollars apart when it comes to imagining what next year and the years, after spending should look like for this country, this is all part of the broader negotiation over increasing the country's borrowing limit. But They are starting to run up against the clock. That is because we are just 10 days away from that June 1st deadline. That is when the Treasury Department says they may not be able to pay all of their bills. So the big question, how long is this going to take on Capitol Hill to get a deal? And then once they get a deal in hand, it's going to take probably about three days in the House of Representatives to move and advance that legislation. In the Senate, it could take up to about a week. That doesn't leave lawmakers much time, which is why getting a deal or at least getting on track to get a deal is so essential out of this meeting today between the president and the House Speaker. Julia?
0: We shall see. Major U.S. corporations continuing, though, to sound the alarm on a potential U.S. debt default and the effect it would have on business and the economic outlook. IBM CEO Arvind Krishna telling me today that a debt ceiling breach would represent a highly destabilizing event for the business community, but he is hopeful for a solution. Listen to this.
2: I have complete confidence it will get resolved. I think the question is when. Will it get resolved before uh, a potential breach? I think that would be ideal for everybody or right at the moment or uh, right after I think any of those we could potentially live with. If it is more than a few days after, that's when we begin to run the risk of, uh, of reputational damage. I'm actually confident the United States will not breach, uh, meaning all its debts will get paid. However, when is the exact question?
0: Yeah, elegantly put. It's not the if, but when. Much more of my interview with Arvind Krishna later in the programme. His thoughts on utilising quantum computing power, the timing of it, regulating AI... And competition between nation states and corporates just ahead. Now, speaking of regulation and regulators, specifically Meta, the parent company of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, has been fined a whopping $1.3 billion for data privacy breaches. It's the largest fine ever handed out under the EU's landmark data privacy law. Meta says it will appeal the ruling. Melissa Bell joins us now on this i think it's the largest ever find that we've seen under the european gdpr the privacy rules Um, meta's a big fish to catch in this eu net but meta's also saying look lots of companies do this and they have to so what's the deal melissa here
3: That's right. Their defence is that they simply have no choice because of the lack of a framework between the United States and the European Union right now, Julia, on how data can uh, safely be transferred, at once in line uh, with the way the American system works in terms of data and the Cloud Act that allow essentially uh, American spy agencies uh, pretty unfettered access to a bunch of that data and European laws. You mentioned the GDPR goes back to 2016, 2018 when it was implemented. We're just coming up, Julia, to the five-year anniversary and as you say There have been big fines uh, levied on American companies in the past. Amazon saw a huge one just a few years ago, uh, nearly $800 million. Some of Meta's platforms have seen fines in the past. The size of this one applied uh, to Meta as a whole, I think, is really an indication. In fact, when you look at the press release from the European regulators, it's a real measure of the frustration that there is here about what they describe as systematic, repeated, continuous breaches. Uh, of essentially the European right, the right of European citizens, which is uh, really well protected since the GDPR uh, came into force, uh, of of knowing what happens to their data and not finding it on American servers where it then falls under a completely different set of laws that are themselves uh, in opposition uh, uh, to what the Europeans do and do not allow. So I think the size of the fine matters and I think the fact that it's been applied uh, to Meta as a whole, Julia, matters as well.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It makes a refreshing change not to be talking about data privacy concerns with nations like China rather than um, than these guys. But to your point, and I think this is a very important one, actually, this sounds to me like it's less about meta and it's more about the US government, actually both governments, because the US government has policies that allows intelligence agencies to, to intercept communications from abroad, including digital communications like these. So it's almost like the two governments, the EU and the US, need to get their heads together provide some clarity and some basis for legal protection for companies like Meta, and then everyone can sort of abide by rules rather than sort of opaque guidelines. Exactly.
3: And... and, And Julia, this is something that the uh, American administration and the administration of Ursula von der Leyen uh, have been trying to get their heads around for Mm. a long time. There have been so many different previous incarnations of this kind of uh, free flow uh, of data packed between the EU and the US. They keep being struck down by European courts. There's another that's being figured out even now—a framework that could come into effect as early as July or as late as October. And of course, that will have a substantial impact on the fallout from meta of this particular ruling julia
0: yeah stop telling us what you don't want and tell us what you do want and then we'll act on it it's shocking for me to be taking this side of the argument <laughs> melissa thank you so much for that <laughs> yes OK, China targeting a major U.S. chipmaker. It's banning Micron from key infrastructure projects, citing security risks. Shares of Micron are down around 4% pre-market, while stocks of some of its Asian rivals have jumped. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, what surprises me most about this is that we actually haven't seen it before from yeah. China in some sort of tit-to-tat action to restrict technologies from um, the United States. But there's a shudder in the chipmakers in the U.S. Yeah. as a result.
4: You know, seven weeks ago they started a review, and so we've been waiting to see what, what, if any kinds of retaliatory action that there would be. And this is, you know, against Micron, which has 10% of its revenue comes from from mainland China. So you've got a, a, you've got economists and analysts trying to decide just how lasting will this impact uh, be on Micron overall. But it is a retaliatory move, likely because the United States has been finding ways to isolate um, the chip making sector inside of uh, of China too. You know, trying to diversify supply lines and actually investing a lot of money in domestic chip making into um, the United States there had been some bans on Huawei technology in in recent months last fall as a matter of fact so this is the first big move we've seen against American uh, chip makers and, and what the government says is that a review of microns uh, uh, chips showed serious network security risks of course the um, US Commerce Department uh, is is disputing that and um, and you know industry experts overall are saying this sounds more political than um, than business related. But it's interesting, I think, because the G7 yesterday in Tokyo, the president of the United States, uh, Joe Biden had said that he was thinking that there could be a thaw in Beijing U.S. Uh, relations sometime in in the near future. So some optimism from the American president. Um, this would suggest, though, we are still in that that cycle of, of, of tension, right, and worsening tensions with China.
0: Exactly where I was going to take you next and ask you (laughs) what you thought of that um joe biden saying i think we're going to see that begin to thaw i mean it's sort of like a frozen solid block like an ice sculpture i think at this moment so uh, you know anything is possible in this regard but as far as technology is concerned christine i i struggle to see a thawing in this regard perhaps the diplomacy can improve but on this it's tough
4: it, it is tough. And, you know, look, there's a feeling in the United States that the U.S. had become too reliant um, on Chinese manu- chip manufacturers. I mean, you just look at some of the drama after COVID, you know, when you couldn't get chips for cars, for example, in the U.S. And there is a big political movement in the United States to invest domestically in chip production and also to just maintain kind of a, a global supply lines that are more in line with, American ideals, if you will, if you, if you were to have some sort of international uh, tension. So there's a real kind of, I think, global shift happening. And we're in the early stages of it, quite frankly. And so I think that that's something that um, these CEOs and, and, and technology investors, quite frankly, as well, are, are going to be closely watching to see how it all plays out. Yeah. And
0: continuing to grapple with um, Christine. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks nice to Christine see Christine Romans there. Now, the Chinese move against Micron comes shortly after the G7 summit in Japan, where leaders of major democracies were united on their concerns over China. For the most part, Anna Karen has Beijing's reaction.
5: China has voiced its anger towards G7 countries, in particular the host, Japan, after summoning Japan's ambassador to China to express serious dismay regarding discussions on China during the three-day summit in Hiroshima. China's increasing aggression and Russia's war in Ukraine was very much top of the agenda of the Group of Seven. Let me read to you some of the statement released by China's foreign ministry last night following Japan's dressing down. It said, Japan, as the host of the G7, collaborated with relevant countries to smear and attack China in the series of activities and in the joint communique. It went on to say that such activities have grossly interfered in China's internal affairs, violated the basic principles of international law and the spirit of the four political documents between China and Japan. At the G7 summit, the leaders of the world's richest democracies were united in their growing concern over China, stressing the need to cooperate with the world's second largest economy, but also to counter its malign practices and coercion. The U.S. views China as the most serious long-term challenge to the international order. This was backed up by the British Prime Minister at the G7, who said China posed, quote, "...the greatest challenge of our age." in regards to global prosperity and security. The leaders of the G7 also pledged new measures targeting Russia to choke off its ability to finance and fuel its war on Ukraine. A surprise visit by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky cemented leaders' resolve and commitment. US President Joe Biden pledged ongoing support, saying, We have Ukraine's back. Russia and China both hit back. Russia's foreign minister slammed the Group of Seven for indulging in their own greatness with an agenda that aimed to deter Russia and China, while China's foreign minister accused G7 leaders of hindering international peace and said the group needed to reflect on its behavior and change course. Anna Corin, CNN, Hong Kong.
0: And coming up here on First Move, a big win for Greece's ruling Conservative Party, but they still can't form a government. More elections, delayed reforms, what it all means after the break. And a quantum peek into the future of computing. My exclusive interview with the CEO of IBM later in the show. Welcome back to First Move. Greek stocks rallied sharply Monday after the country's ruling New Democracy Party won in parliamentary elections on Sunday. Even though Conservative Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis' party won at the ballot box, though, he fell short of the threshold needed to secure a single-party government. The Prime Minister has ruled out the possibility of forming a coalition, likely setting the stage for a second round of voting, a key issue at the polls among many. Greece's economic future, as many Greeks struggle against a backdrop of high inflation and rising living costs. Nikos Vettis is General Director for the Foundation for Economic and Industrial Research and he joins us now. Nikos, great to have you with us. Um, They may be unable to form a single-party government, but this is a far stronger showing for new democracy than I think the polls were predicting. We can call this a win.
6: Right, the polls were predicting that new democracy would be ahead, uh, more or less, but but no one predicted that it would have effectively uh, double... Um, the percentage that Syriza has. It um, turns out it it was 20% of the vote for Syriza, 40% for uh, New Democracy. But as you said, this is still short of uh, having a full uh, parliamentary majority. So it looks like uh, we are heading for new elections in roughly a month from now. And the full prediction of everyone right now is that New Democracy will be able to form a single-party government... This is not 100% certainty, but it is high. Uh, with, this is with high probability. What if they
0: can't at that stage? Sorry? What if they can't form a government at that stage? I guess it's the, the loss of time that I'm worried about. When you're campaigning for an election, we're talking about perhaps another month for an election. What if they can't form right. a, a single-party government the, the, at that stage? Rules,
6: yeah, it's interesting. The, the rules are such that... The electoral system is a little bit different, um, will be a little bit different a month from now. So giving a bonus to the party uh, that, will, that will be first. Um, as a result, uh, new democracy then will have about 30 more MPs than what it has uh, today. Um, and this gives high chance, as I said, they will be able to govern just by themselves. Uh, if they were to govern now, they would have to seek the votes of the third party, PASOK, the socialist party. And um, honestly, right now, no one in the country thinks that this is going to be a likely outcome. Mm.
0: Is this a vote of confidence in the policies that the government has put into place? The relative stability, I think, that Greece has enjoyed, if that's the right word, over the past few years relative to, to what we saw in the, I guess, decade quite frankly, before. I've been to one or two or many elections in, in Greece over the past few years. People just wanting a continuation of stability, perhaps, Nikos, more than anything else.
6: Um, you're right, stability, but you're also right to say relative stability because it wasn't that stable. With, with the COVID pandemic, then the energy crisis, Ukraine is very near. Um, inflation has ha- has hit very hard the households. So it hasn't been easy, but you're right, Um, Greece has been in turmoil um, with the Eurozone debt crisis that was triggered with Lehman Brothers, Um, so starting really several years back. And um, in in a word, I think Greeks um, were tired of uh, all this drama. No one wants more drama. Uh, I think... um, No one believes things are going to be easy ahead. The expectations are positive, but realistic. Um, Greeks know that uh, it is not possible that the government can go on um, with um, a policy that is going to be able to support these households um, in the future in the way it did during the COVID and then the energy crisis. Uh, They know that there is going to be a difficult road ahead, but indeed they voted uh, to have a more normal uh, policy, a more stable policy that gradually can uh, increase incomes and make Greece overall converge to the Eurozone average.
0: I think it's normal in election periods for um leaders or hopeful leaders to discuss how to share out the economic pie rather than how to implement policies to grow that pie in general. And I'm talking about economic growth for the economy. Nikos, what do you want to see from the next government going forward that helps grow that pie rather than just, to your point, sharing out pieces of it, which is increasingly difficult? And, And are you confident that Greece gets its investment grade rating perhaps in the second half of this year? Because that's vital too.
6: It is vital, and already you saw the markets today uh, have rewarded Greece in a sense. Um, money is, is flowing into the country. Um, but you, you, you put your finger in exactly the question for how Greece can grow. And I would say there are three things that are important. First of all, that all sorts of policies that are going to be implemented, they, they, they reflect a sense of seriousness, um, that we are not going to experiment Greece is not making very high payments for its debt right now, but it will in four or five years from now. Uh, And especially in an environment where interest rates are going up, um, this is not something to play with. Uh, The second thing is how to um, manage your um, public expenditure and receipts. So basically, Greece has to have not a high, but uh, a modest and systematic primary budget surplus that is going to reflect to everyone that it is on the, on the right route. Um, and that is also a pro-growth uh, policy. Greece cannot go back to deficits. Oh. But the third thing, and that's the more difficult one, perhaps, and that's where the um, high percentage of votes and support for the government, one way to read this, is that this is not just a mandate to continue what it was doing to be serious and manage the crisis well but proceed to change the country even further and by changing the country um, we are still lagging behind most eurozone economies in all the important um, measures productivity how much we're exporting how innovative our businesses are there have been a really uh, large number of positive reforms and developments, but we are nowhere near. We can be four years from now if the government implements reforms that are going to shake up the economy in the right ways.
0: Yes, well, I'm sure um, Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis will be saying, um, give me some more time now to, uh, to finish the job. We'll see. Nikos, great to have you with us. Thank you for your insights, Nikos Vetas, there. General Thank Director. You. Thank you for the Foundation for Economic and Industrial Research. Okay, still to come, new developments in the bitterly contested city of Bagmut. We're live from southeastern Ukraine after this. Welcome back to First Move. Ukraine's energy company says external electricity has been restored to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The plant, which has been held by Russian troops, was cut off from the grid on Monday for the seventh time since the war began after a power line was damaged in a Russian attack. Meanwhile, Ukraine is denying Russian claims that Moscow has completely captured Bakhmut. Elsewhere, the governor of Russia's Belgorod region claims an area close to the border was shelled by Ukrainian forces and that Ukrainian sabotage groups crossed the border into Russian territory. Sam Kylie joins us now to discuss all of this. Sam, um, let's start with Bakhmut because you've long said, look, the importance of this is far more symbolic than it is strategic at this stage. And yet the battle continues and far from the Ukrainian officials suggesting that the Russians now, or at least the Wagner group, have overtaken it. They say they're in a strategic position for when Wagner's forces remove themselves. Where are we today?
7: Well, it all rather hangs in the balance, partly because Evgeny Prigozhin. Uh, Julia has said, that, and he's the leader of the Wagner mercenary organisation, that he will pull his troops out on Thursday. Uh, No sign that anybody will come to replace them. Very little sign, indeed, that he'll be able to pull them out. But if he were to try, that would provide the Ukrainians with a golden opportunity for a counter-offensive when troops are most vulnerable when they're changing over. It was inconceivable that they would do so, having secured the city, if indeed they have. Now, the Ukrainians are saying they still hold a small foothold in the city itself but more importantly they say and they're right that they are flanking the city to the north and the south and therefore uh, they are in a much stronger position uh, in the future for some kind of attack particularly essentially now that the city is clear of ukrainians and ukrainian troops Uh, it means that it's now a free fire zone for Ukrainian artillery. So if you're a Russian mercenary soldier or regular soldier in that environment, you will be feeling extremely vulnerable given that you are being flanked to the north and the south. So this is part of the ebb and flow of the ongoing battle for Bakhmut. Arguably now... It might conceivably provide the Ukrainians, ironically, with a counteroffensive opportunity if the Russians make themselves vulnerable by trying to switch out mercenaries for regular troops. Julia?
0: That makes more sense to me. Um, Sam, I want to ask you about the governor of Russia's Belgorod region as well, the suggestion that a sabotage group from Ukraine actually entered Russian territory.
7: Well, this is one of the few occasions in which the Russians and the Ukrainians are in agreement. Mm. Uh, the Ukrainians have confirmed that what they say is a group of Russian volunteers in the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, we've report, reported on them before. There's a few hundred Ukrainians, uh, uh, rather Russians in the Ukrainian armed forces forming essentially a Russian legion, combat legion, did indeed cross into uh, some small villages in the border areas. Uh, just inside Russia from Ukrainian territory. Uh, There's even some pictures suggesting that they were actually even in Ukrainian military vehicles when they did so. The Ukrainians are saying that they're acting as private citizens only, uh, even though they admit that when they're inside Ukraine, they fall under the Ukrainian Armed Forces uh, command. Now, this group, uh, the political leader of this group, has said that they are continuing to fight inside Russia at the moment. They did issue a statement. This is the fighters just ahead of their deployment there. Uh, directed at Russian citizens in that area saying, broadly speaking, fear nothing, take cover, unlike uh, the other Russians that have invaded Ukraine and murdered civilians. We're not like that. And we are there to liberate you from the yoke of the Putin regime. These are strongly anti-Putin group that has been growing in numbers over the last few years, many of them, of course, uh, people who are ethnic Russians but based uh, and often married uh, to Ukrainians in, in Ukraine, Julia.
0: Yeah, heartbreaking. Sam Kiley, great to have you with us as always. Thank you. Okay, Ukrainian forces are getting a crash course on a secret weapon that is to be used to defend themselves. CNN's Nick Robertson reports on the new tools being added to Ukraine's arsenal. The
8: uh, the cold effect. <laughs> So... After three or four days
5: in the cold, if you're leaving it outside or there's no heating this yeah, these will last probably three weeks.
9: Yeah. Ukrainian troops get a lesson on covert bomb making.
5: And um, that goes through your body.
9: British explosives and counterinsurgency specialists pass on decades of know-how to soldiers already well-versed in normal frontline combat but these are no ordinary bombs they are secret weapons in ukraine's clandestine arsenal to kill russians on ukrainian land
7: if we have a high priority target we of course use this equipment against it
9: And it's not just individual targets, similar technology already in very experienced Ukrainian hands was used to bring down a building on dozens of Russian troops recently in Bakhmut.
7: This equipment is used to destroy the enemy. We use it to produce explosive devices we can use on the ground, on the battlefield, or in the air as munition for drones.
9: But it's not just the subversive skills and techniques the British experts bring that are needed in undercover operations. It's the bomb components too sophisticated switches specialized microchips night vision goggles covert monitoring devices even 3d printers some relatively easy to buy outside ukraine are in high demand because troops here are in a race against time against the russians and getting them through nato partners
7: simply takes too long it's hard to measure this help with words or numbers because it's a great moral support for us, straight to our hearts. And we are very, very grateful for this help. It's
9: a measure, even on the eve of an expected big counteroffensive, of just how much help Ukraine's military still needs. That more than a year into the war, even the smallest of components, the most modest of hands-on help, is so gratefully received. Nick Robertson, CNN, Eastern Ukraine.
0: And coming up after the break, from cracking encryption to far more efficient and undiscovered ways of cleaning up the planet, we're talking quantum leaps for IBM, a 10-year mission to build the world's most powerful quantum supercomputer. IBM CEO is up next. Welcome back to First Move. No Monday malaise on Wall Street. The major stock average is gaining ground in early trade. That's what we like to see as investors await today's new round of debt ceiling negotiations at the White House. Uncertainty too over the Federal Reserve's interest rate path in focus also. The St. Louis Fed President James Bollard saying that two more rate hikes this year may be needed to get inflation truly under control. And another Fed official, Neil Kashkari, this time saying a rate hike pause in June would not necessarily signal an end to the tightening cycle. They're just keeping their options open. Their remarks come after closely watched comments from Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Friday. Powell says recent stress to the banking system may lessen the need for future rate hikes. Now, from solving climate change to improving electric vehicle battery technology, tackling some of the world's most challenging problems remains beyond the reach of even the world's most powerful supercomputers, at least for now. IBM just announced a mega 10-year, $100 million initiative to develop a quantum supercomputer, And according to the firm, it may just look something like this, sort of like an enormous wire and glass chandelier. Now, inside, it has the kind of processing power you need a PhD to get your head around. And that's exactly what IBM have perhaps done, partnering with two academic institutions, the University of Tokyo and Chicago, to foster this development. And in a broadcast exclusive, I spoke to the CEO, Arvind Krishna, about the deal announced during the G7 summit in Japan.
2: Thank you, Julia. It's always a pleasure to be on with you, and I'm talking to you here from Tokyo because I was in Hiroshima on uh, Sunday uh, getting the deal signed, and it is a geographic collaboration. Look, technology always needs partners, and in this case, it's fantastic to collaborate with the University of Tokyo as well as the University of Chicago and signed it under the auspices of the G7 with both the blessings of the US government and the Japanese government. Quantum computing. I think that while normal computing has served us wonderfully, 70 years of incredible innovation driven by computers, there are limits to what it can do. If we want to help solve climate change, we want to help solve food, uh, food shortages, which means fertilizers, and we want to work on electrification. Quantum computing holds an incredible promise of being able to solve these problems from the physical world by really helping simulate the quantum mechanical properties of those processes. So the ability to then make progress. So I step back and say, quantum computing is now jumping from science to engineering, but that means we need to make a lot of progress. And the incredible talent that both these universities bring will help us on our our commitment to get a 100,000 qubit quantum computer done. And Julia, before you even ask me, what does that mean? So (laughs) the the number of qubits is simply a measure of the power of these computers. And I believe that with the universities collaborating, we are going to be able to get there.
4: Yeah, I was
0: absolutely going to ask you about that, because I think for most people that are watching this, the idea of quantum computing, they've probably heard of it, but are not really sure. And the idea of powering something by qubits and 100,000 of them, I think in this case is the point where their heads explode. Um, Just If you can just give us a sense, you've given us a couple of practical examples like modelling, I think, for the impact of climate change. How can we improve electric car batteries, I think, is another one. But I think cybersecurity actually is one of the um, aspects that people talk about talk about with quantum computing and the idea that perhaps with the sheer speed and scale that these computers can work, any form of encryption can be sort of unlocked. And perhaps that's one of the benefits, but also one of the huge dangers. Can you just talk about that example and and how far ahead we're talking? Because I know this deal is over 10 years and that's the sort of time frame. But how quickly actually could we be seeing um, this kind of simulations or or sensing, as it's called, as well being utilised in the real world?
2: So as quantum computers get larger and as they get more error-free, today's encryption is likely to get broken. I'll just say it in a definitive way, not even with any qualifications. So how far away is that? Five years, seven years, definitely within a decade at the most. And I would call that as both a dark side, but there's a positive. There's quantum safe encryption, which was not going to get broken by quantum computers. And that is already in a semi-standard uh, going forward. There are a number of algorithms best, blessed by the National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST, in the United States. And I would highly encourage people that for the data that don't want broken five or seven years from now, start using quantum safe encryption. So I agree with the possible threat, but that's the nature of all technology. Technology moves forward, but as long as medications are in place, then the risk is not really a real risk. Also, Julia, going back to the use cases, while it's a 10-year-long deal, I would tell you that I expect commercial advantages to start occurring in the first half, so meaning in five years. Good to know.
0: Um, IBM's long been talking about the quantum development roadmap. Um, and you and I, I know I've talked about it in the past as sort of one of the exciting aspects of, of the business and how you're investing. Um, but I look across this sphere and I think there's, I've counted seven different approaches um, to quantum and everybody's going in different directions. Yours is just one approach. And, and this is a lot of money, um, $100 million for your part of this um, alone. How are you confident that the approach that you're taking is the right one?
2: So uh, I actually get excited when there are many approaches and many companies. So nations, whether United States, France, United Kingdom, Japan, uh, China, South Korea, Australia, um, number of countries that are investing in quantum. There's probably at least two three, maybe four dozen different companies that are working on it. Actually, to me, that tells me that the problem is real. It tells me that it's not just us who's excited about it, but all of these other people are. And I think competition hones one's instincts, holds one's uh, progress because you can measure it against what others are doing. And so you say, why do we feel confident on our approach? We have 22 physical quantum computers available through the IBM cloud. Most others have one, maybe two, they have a lot of simulation they have a lot of software but not a lot of actual quantum computers and this is one of those funny things i'll kind of say it tongue-in-cheek julia unless you have an actual quantum computer how do you get any advantage so that gives me some confidence we're on the right track in the end though time is going to tell who finishes uh, who finishes the race right now we're still in the middle of the race
0: just in the early stages. And we like tongue in cheek on this show. Um, you're obviously, as you said, you're, you're coming to us from, um, from Tokyo. In the past 24 hours, we've seen President Biden suggesting ties with China might improve. At the same time, China is now restricting its companies from buying um, technologies from Micron, a-, a US company, because they're saying they're concerned. This sort of tit for tat in technology continues. Do you see yourself And it sort of ties to the point that you made at the beginning about the blessing from Prime Minister Kishida and and President Biden on this. In strategic competition, particularly with things like generative AI and and quantum technologies with China?
2: Look, um, so we are a company, not a nation. So companies have competition with other companies, not with nations. Nations can compete with each other. Uh, My preference would always be that we remain in a system of global trade and global cooperation because increased trade, I think if I remember the number right, 10% of increased trade causes a 1% increase in GDP growth rates. And the difference between a 1% and a 3% uh, GDP growth rate is incredible. If you do the compounding, that is what has led to the advances we've seen in quality of life and in uh, quality of uh, people's incomes over the last century. So that's sort of a macro. Now, under that, am I worried? No, I'm not actually worried. I think that uh, the advances that the Western world has made, and when I say Western, I'm sitting in East Asia, but I'm counting that as part of the ecosystem all the way from the Quad countries to Western Europe to South America. So it's a bit more than quote unquote. But there's a lot of talent and there is a lot of ability for us all to compete. And so whether I look at generative AI or quantum or AI in general or computing in general, I'm confident of our ability to compete. That said, the larger the underlying GDP of the nations, the better for that to be the aggregate marketplace.
0: Yeah, and sometimes governments can invest a, a huge amount of money in supporting their industries. And I, I do take your point about the strategic competition as a corporate, but sometimes as Micron's found in the last 24 hours, you're in the firing line, whether you choose to be or not. Um, what about regulating all of this, Arvind? I mean, there was some suggestion from Sam Altman of OpenAI last week, as far as generative AI is concerned, a specific AI, federal agency is required to regulate this, this specific technology. and and. I'm not sure IBM agrees. We've long talked about not sort of restricting technologies or strangling technological development with, with regulation or the innovation that's required. What do you think is required with things like quantum and AI? Specific or do current agencies have the powers?
2: I, so current agencies do have the power. And I would tell you that I think precision regulation around use cases is what ought to be done not sort of a blunt instrument of regulation. I kind of look and ask, so I guess we have an agency that regulates computing. We have agencies that do regulate uh, consumer devices in our home, of course not. I do believe though that if you apply it to users that could be nefarious or that could be harmful or that the technology is not ready for, those should be regulated. So perhaps in healthcare, uh, perhaps in uh, things that may cause a lot of physical damage, certainly. And by the way, we do have regulations already, whether it's with the FTC, whether it's with the Department of Justice, whether it's with the FTC around use cases that are there. So I think that there is sufficient agencies. I think one more uh, will probably feel burdensome to at least many of us, maybe not to some others. Um, <laughs> that said, sure. I do think that. But no, I'll give it again. to you, Julia.
0: Yeah, do you really think they understand the technology well enough, as well as you guys do, to be able to regulate you, even in a precision and a precise manner?
2: I think you've hit this, the nail on the head. That is what every agency has to do. They have to get a few people who understand what the technology is, what it can do, what are its limitations, what are its ills, so that they can then help govern the application of the technology to their particular agency and use cases. That is exactly what I believe has to be done.
0: And the question is, how long does it take? Arvind Krishna there, the CEO of IBM. Now coming up from space-age computing to a week-long stay in space. A history-making crew docking at the International Space Station. will are live at Kennedy Space Center next. Welcome back to First Move. You are looking at pictures of the SpaceX Crew Dragon, the spacecraft that just docked at the International Space Station. The four-person crew boarded the rocket and took off from Florida on Sunday afternoon. They will now embark on a week-long stay aboard the ISS, the second all-private mission to the outpost. The crew is also making history with the first woman to command a private spaceflight, as well as the first woman from Saudi Arabia to travel to space. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live for us at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Lots of firsts, one second here, but definitely history in the making, Carlos. Talk about what we're going to expect to see and hear over the next week.
8: Yeah, Julia. So uh, the docking process, as you noted, uh, is complete right now. The uh, Dragon cruise ship uh, crew ship rather uh, is docked uh, with the International Space Station. We're told the ISS is over the Pacific Ocean. And so what's going to happen between now and at around 11, 1115, 11, is they're going to get some work done and then they're going to open the hatch. At that point, uh, the four member crew aboard the uh, Dragon uh, crew ship will uh, meet the seven other astronauts that are currently on the International Space Station. Uh, of the four uh, crew members, Uh, that uh, are right now in this process. Uh, Two of them are American. uh, The other two are Saudis. Uh, Peggy Whitson, she is the uh, U.S. commander of this uh, uh, mission. She is a former uh, NASA astronaut herself. Uh, She's got a great deal of experience uh, out in space, having spent 665 days in space. She was also a commander of the International Space Station. She is joined by uh, John Schaffner. He is the mission pilot. And then they are joined by two Saudis, Ali Alkani, he is a mission specialist, and uh, he is also joined by Rayana Barnawi. She is also a mission specialist, and uh, she uh, made some history yesterday, uh, becoming the first uh, Saudi woman in space. Uh, Again, right now, uh, Julie, uh, everything is going as planned. Uh, The docking process is complete. Everything is going uh, um, pretty much as they wanted to. Uh, In fact, we're told uh, that one of the astronauts from the ISS has already uh, welcomed these four crew members by radio, uh, telling them that they all look forward to meeting them
0: shortly. Joy? Yeah, and we can't can't wait to see more images of that. Carlos, great to uh, have you with us. You've been saved from me asking you how much all this costs um, and how much those seats cost the Saudi Arabians as well because we've run out of time. Carlos, great to have you with us. Thank you. Carlos Suarez there. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next and I'll see you tomorrow.